Our scripture reading this evening is Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or, being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth the graven image, 
And the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants there are, thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. He that bringeth the princes to nothing, he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail, fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So far we read God's holy word. The text for the sermon are the first two verses of the chapter. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Just a translation matter. <clears throat> in, stand, in verse 2, it appears as though God is giving two reasons for comfort cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished one that her iniquity is pardoned that's two and really the third part of the verse is just another a third element then not four as if we have two things and then a because but the last part of the verse is simply again she hath received of the lord's hand double for all her sins three reasons 
three aspects of the comfort that God gives to his people. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith our God. These words mark the beginning of a new section of the prophecy of Isaiah. From chapter 40 to the end is an entirely new section in this prophecy. It is addressed to Jews who were in captivity in Babylon. And those Jews have nearly completed now their 70 years of captivity. And they are hoping that the Lord will take them back to Jerusalem. Though at this point in their life there is no indication that that's happening. This raises a problem for some, this new section, because Isaiah did not live at the time of the captivity. Isaiah lived decades before that. He lived at the time of Hezekiah. And there were seven more kings after Hezekiah before the captivity. And then the 70 years of captivity, Isaiah was long dead before Israel, before the Jews were brought into captivity. In this section, Isaiah not only prophesies that they will return after 70 years, but he gives the name of the king who will tell them they may return from their captivity. At the end of chapter 44, the last verse, verse 28, God speaks through Isaiah, and Isaiah says then, Thus that saith, God now, that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. And then in, verse, in chapter 45, the next verse, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. So here is Isaiah standing here long before the captivity, announcing to the captives that someone named Cyrus would come up and would let them return to Jerusalem. Now, people that do not believe in the inspiration of Scripture, people that are higher critics, who look down at the Bible as a critic and say, this is just a book like any other, say, well, then Isaiah obviously did not write these chapters. It must have been written by someone much later that looked back at the captivity, that looked back and said, look, 70 years they were there, and Cyrus was the one who let them go back. So someone many years later wrote chapters 40 through 27. But if they have a problem with Cyrus and the other things that Isaiah says, they do not understand the nature of inspiration. 
that God, by his Spirit, many times gave knowledge to a human writer so that he could write down what God's Spirit said to him that the man could not have known any other way except that the Spirit gave him the knowledge. And later on, if the higher critics have a problem with the name Cyrus, think of chapter 53, Isaiah 53, as it so vividly describes the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. And Isaiah wrote chapter 53 long before Jesus was born and died on the cross. And everyone knows that these chapters were written long before Jesus was born. We therefore entirely reject the idea that Isaiah did not write these. We're convinced without a doubt that he did. But nonetheless, there's an important division here in the, in the prophecy. The first 39 chapters are addressed to Judah at a time when Judah was really, from an outward point of view, in pretty good shape. They had some good kings. They prospered financially. They were strong militarily. They were independent. No one was ruling over them. But underneath, there was a horrible spiritual rottenness. Their worship of God was increasingly a dead formalism. They brought their sacrifices. They brought their tithes. But their heart, God said, is far from me. Their lives indicated that their hearts really were toward their idols. And their lifestyle was full of horrible immorality. Accordingly, God, who knows the heart, sent Isaiah. And Isaiah came with strong rebukes against Judah and pronounced judgment and a wrath that was certain to come. The capstone of that is found in verse 39, where Hezekiah, who in many ways was a good king, Hezekiah had some visitors come from a distant land called Babylon. And those visitors came to Hezekiah and honored him, and he was quite proud of the fact that they were honoring him, and he showed them all around Jerusalem, all the treasures of the king's house, all the treasures of the temple, all the magnificent buildings in Jerusalem. But these were enemies of God. And God sent Isaiah to Hezekiah with a stern rebuke and said, Babylon will be the nation that tears down Jerusalem, that destroys it. That's the end of the first section of his prophecy. Chapter 40 on is an entirely new section. With, this, with the vision of a prophet... Isaiah sees that the Jews have been brought into captivity, that they have been there now for nearly 70 years. He sees that with the vision God gives him. And God commands Isaiah to bring comfort to those people who would be in captivity in the land of Babylon. 
But clearly this word prophesies more than merely the end of the captivity. It is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, as the subsequent verses that we read clearly indicate. Now, as we will see, this, this can only be because of Christ that the captivity can end for Judah. But in addition to that, there is a typical significance here that this is not a word merely for the captives in Babylon so many years ago and a prophecy that their captivity will end, but this is obviously for the church of all ages. And God is pronouncing a comfort for His people who yet live in the earth today. We plan, therefore, to use this well-known chapter for a brief Christmas series that looks forward to the coming of Christ from this point of view. It's certainly good for us to remember the coming of the Savior to the earth in the flesh, and to remember that Christmas is far more than merely a holiday, a time to be happy from a human point of view. It's about the coming of the Savior. It's about our salvation from sin and death. His coming is the cause of every blessing. His coming is true comfort. And that's what we will look at as we look at these verses. Today we consider then, commanded to comfort Jerusalem. Commanded to comfort Jerusalem. You'll notice in the first place the great need. Secondly, the threefold comfort. And finally, the particular recipients of this comfort. There is a great need for comfort. If you think about the captives in Babylon so many years ago, the Jews are in captivity. They are separated from their homeland, from Canaan, from Judah, from Jerusalem. The land that had been dedicated to the service of God, the, the land that God specifically gave to His people Israel that they might live there as his people. The center of their land was Jerusalem, obviously, the capital city established by David, a beautiful city set up on seven mountains or hills. One of those hills within the city was Moriah, where the temple was built. Another hill in the city was Zion, where Solomon built his palace. And all of these names, of course, well known to the Israelites, evoked all the memories of the great kingdom of David and of Solomon. Of greater significance of the city is its spiritual significance. It was the city of God. It was the city where God put His name in His temple. That's where the people came to the temple to offer their sacrifices this is where the yearly ceremonies would be held, the Passover feast and the great day of atonement and the feast of harvest. But in captivity, 
none of these offerings could be made as they should be. None of these ceremonies or religious holidays could be kept. But as we will see, Jerusalem is more than a city in the scriptures. The Jerusalem has typical significance as the church of God. And that's evident even from the way it is spoken to here. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Literally, speak to the heart of Jerusalem, almost as if Jerusalem is a person. And that's because Jerusalem is the church. Speak ye comfortably to the church. God commands the prophet. But for the captives... There was little of Jerusalem even to hold on to because Jerusalem was in ruins, destroyed by the Babylonians. By this time in their captivity, most of the Jews could not even remember the city, the temple, and the ceremonies. A few of the older people would have remembered something of it. Most of the people in captivity only knew life in Babylon. They were immersed in life there. Believing parents struggled even to have their children to be interested in Jerusalem, to be interested in the life of the worship, the service of God in the city of God. It was a terrible grief for those parents to be separated from Jerusalem, living as captives in Babylon. Babylon was a great city. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, in Daniel chapter 2, that great image, the head, was gold, and everything below that became elements of lesser value. And the head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. It was, from an earthly point of view, a glorious kingdom. And Babylon was a beautiful city. Hanging gardens, majestic walls, ornate palaces and temples throughout the city. Babylon was a center of culture and of learning. The Babylonians were far advanced in their understanding of mathematics, for example, and of the calendar, and of the just laws that would run their empire. And Babylon was wholly given over to idolatry. From this city of Babylon had come Nebuchadnezzar with his fierce armies to Jerusalem. And the first time that they came, they surrounded Jerusalem, and when the king had to give up, they went in and took from the palace of the king the gold that they could find. They took the vessels of the house of God and brought them back to Babylon. They took the best of the young men like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and many other Jewish young men and brought them back to the land of Babylon to, to attend their schools. When, Jeru when Judah rebelled again, those armies came a second time to Jerusalem, and this time they entirely destroyed it. 
They went into the temple and defiled it, stripped away anything of value, carried away all of the metals, and then they burned the temple of God. And the same thing with any palace and any house of the rich in Jerusalem. They took the walls of Jerusalem, her defense against the enemy, and toppled them to the ground. Israel was a city in ruins. And then they carried off most of the rest of the people into captivity. That was many years before this. The word of, that this goes to the people in captivity and by now, Babylon was becoming home to the Jews. It was a dangerous place for a covenant people to live because the goal of Babylon is that all the nations would live together and mingle together and become one people of Babylon, that everyone would get along, adjust their religious worship and their cultures together, and all the nations would lose their distinctive characteristics and meld into one people, the kingdom of Babylon. This was, of course, a very wise thing from a political point of view, but from a spiritual point of view, it carried great danger for the Israelites, for the Jews in captivity. It was putting away the life of the antithesis. It was being willing to synthesize, to combined their religious and their cultural life with all of the nations that were around them and become like everyone else. So obviously it was a difficult time for the people of God in exile. There was a tremendous spiritual struggle to remain separate, to live the antithesis. They must have prayed fervently that God would deliver them from their bondage, and allow them to return to Jerusalem. They needed comfort and encouragement. But that wasn't the greatest grief yet to them, that they were living far away, that they were living in this wicked land. The greatest grief to them was their sin because they knew their captivity was exactly due to their own sin. That's what brought them there. Israel had followed the ways of the heathen around them. When God, years, years before, had led them up to the land of Canaan, He said, the people in the land of Canaan are wicked. They have filled the cup of iniquity. You must go into the land of Canaan and thoroughly cleanse the land. Drive them out. Kill anyone that resists you. The land must be purged of its iniquity. And he warned them, do not take their idols. Do not intermarry with them. Do not follow the ways of the heathen. If you do, the very land will spew you out because you too will fill the cup of iniquity. Bowing to their idols, sacrificing even their children. God warned them about the heathen sacrificing their children to their idols. The terrible immorality that always went with idolatry, the prostitution 
and the adultery. God had given them laws about how they should live separate from the ungodly. Not only the Ten Commandments, but all of their laws would separate them. How they lived, what they ate, clean or unclean, how they dressed, how they farmed, everything was to be distinct from the heathen, separate from the ungodly. They were to be a holy nation, a nation of priests unto the Lord. But Israel, the ten tribes, first, and then Judah, had forgotten. In the historical book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 14, we read this, 2 Chronicles 36, 14, Moreover, all the chief of the priests, chief of the priests now, and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And so it goes on to describe their wickedness. Isaiah, in his first 39 chapters, says to Judah, You and Israel have done worse than the nations that were there before you. Worse than their abominations. And Judah knew this. God sent prophet after prophet, warning them against their abominable sins, rebuking them, Turn ye, turn ye, why will ye die, O house of Israel? Turn from your sin. But they would not listen. And when the prophets came, they mocked them, and they mistreated them, and they stoned them and killed some of the prophets of God that came to rebuke them. Until finally God drove them out of the land and into captivity for 70 years. Why 70? 7 times 10. 10 is the number of completeness. And with the number 7, you have 1 in 7 days is a Sabbath. The land, God said, will keep its Sabbaths for 70 years, free from all the abominations of Israel. The God-fearing, like Daniel, who confessed sins in Daniel chapter 9, knew that their captivity was God's judgment on the sins of his people. The sins of the fathers, of the kings, of the princes, of the priests, and of the people. It was a continual grief because it wasn't as if now that we've been exiled, now our lives have changed, now we don't live any sin anymore. Of course, they looked at themselves and said, just as you and I do, sin is continually a part of our life. And when they looked at the nation as a whole in captivity, 
Israel did not turn. The Jews did not turn. They became worse in their abominations and adopted the idolatry of the people of Babylon. Believers must have wondered, God said 70 years, but how can that be? Will God even bother to come back and take his people back to Jerusalem when we're actually worse now than we were when we went into captivity? Terrible grief that the people of God, when they saw in the church of God, the horrible violation of all God's commandments. In the face of that, God commands, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. What kind of comfort could Isaiah bring to these captives? Could he say, Someday you'll get to go home, I suppose, but their home was rubble. Not a lot of comfort there. Could he say, well, God cares for you? He could say that, I guess, but where is the proof of that? The true comfort that he would have to bring to them that only could bring comfort is first of all, God promised 70 years, he is faithful. He will keep his promise. He will deliver you from captivity and bring you back to the land of promise. That first of all. But there has to be more. And that is, Judah, all your suffering, all your suffering, has purpose. God knows your suffering, and the suffering that you are enduring has a good purpose. It, in fact, will lead to a greater blessing than if you had never gone into captivity. That's what comfort always does. God will keep his word, and the sufferings of this life will work for your blessing. And so he comes with a threefold comfort. As I said, threefold, not two and then a reason for, but all three are equal reasons for comfort. God commands, cry unto her. What must be sounded out to the captives in Babylon? First of all, her warfare is accomplished. Her warfare is accomplished. It's full. It is fulfilled. How was Judah at war? They were not fighting anything. They were captives at that point. But the warfare of Judah is the warfare of God's people always. The battle of faith. The battle of faith. Which was severe in Babylon. A wicked city seeking to draw believers into her life of abominable idolatry and immorality. Seeking to draw the sons and the daughters of the covenant families into the lifestyle of Babylon. 
It required a fight, a fight to hold on to the traditions of the fathers, to hold on to the worship of God, the one only true God, as he had commanded them. There was a battle against the pressures to synthesize, to become one with the world, to adopt their idols and be able to say, yes, I worship Jehovah and I'm willing to worship the gods of the nations around us. A struggle to maintain the antithesis and the life of godliness. And then there is the battle against their own sins, their own sinful nature, which is continually pulling them in that direction. Their besetting sins and the corruption of their own mind and soul. All the while they are living, surrounded by the horrible iniquity of Babylon. The comfort is your warfare is accomplished. It's full. It's full. It's over. The particular amount of affliction that God had determined them was full. That was full. But if their warfare is over, it must mean that there is victory. There must be a victory if the war is over. The struggle, the hardship is all finished. The foe is vanquished. That's the word of comfort to the captives in Babylon. Your warfare is accomplished. You can rest. You can rest. The second comfort is cry. Her iniquity is pardoned. Her iniquity is pardoned. Very strong words in that little phrase. First of all, iniquity in no way minimizes their sin. Iniquity is perverseness. Iniquity is depravity. All their idolatry, all their fornication, all their lies, all their idolatry, their desecration of the land is pardoned. Is pardoned. And the word pardoned emphasizes that God will receive them. There's nothing between them and God. Their iniquity has been set aside. It's pardoned, and He accepts them and receives them into His own blessed fellowship because their sins are paid for. This is tremendous comfort. They can go home because their warfare is finished, but they go home not under the burden that God is angry with them, that God is still condemning them because their iniquities are pardoned. They're gone. That explains why their warfare is finished, because they were pardoned. Those are the two things, first of all, their Warfare is accomplished, their iniquity is pardoned, and third, she hath received double for all her sins. That's more difficult. The idea is certainly not that Judah has somehow atoned for her sins 
by her suffering, by a double punishment, that, that's impossible. It's impossible, first of all, because God is a just God. He would not visit a double punishment on someone that they would pay for their sins. God punishes according to the deed, not a double punishment. In the second place, it's impossible because there is no way that Judah has suffered in such a way that she has herself paid for her sins. That's impossible. She has not in any way suffered the eternity of God's wrath by being in captivity for 70 years. Job 11, verse 16, uh, reminds anyone in affliction, also Job, Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. We never are punished in a way that we really get what we deserve. Double? It could refer to the fact that they have indeed endured affliction of two kinds, that God himself has afflicted them by putting them into captivity and destroying their land, and that on the other hand, they have endured the reproach, the scorn, the affliction of the ungodly, in that sense, double. But I prefer to see it a different way, and that is that it is a double blessing, a double blessing. It is not unusual that God would give a tremendous blessing after afflicting his people. You think of Job. Job is the perfect example of double. After God chastened Job, God gave him twice as many cattle, twice as many camels, and so on down the line, and gave him ten more children, so that he now had twenty, ten in heaven and ten on the earth. He had double of what he had before his affliction. And in, in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 7, God uses the same language. Now chapter 61 is a very important chapter because it starts out about a prophecy of Jesus and what he would do. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty, and so on, and to comfort, to comfort. And now in verse 7. For your shame ye shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land shall they possess the double, and everlasting joy shall be unto them. The point is, Judah, Jerusalem, have received for her sins a chastisement. But the same hand of God that has chastised her will now bless her far more than they ever could imagine. A double 
blessing, so to speak. Not, again, necessarily that the emphasis is on, well, if you have 10, now you have 20. Not double necessarily that way, but simply far more, far more than one would expect. A greater blessing. Our, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, our light affliction, and he's talking to people now who are persecuted, who are dying of cancer, who have all kinds of afflictions and troubles in their life. He says, our light affliction worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So that if you would compare the affliction and compare the weight of glory, the weight of glory is far, far greater. That's the point that Isaiah is making here. God would bless them far more than they could ever imagine. But how is this possible? That all of these things could happen, that their warfare is accomplished, that their iniquity is pardoned, that they will receive double from the Lord's hand, double blessing. It can only be understood when we see Jesus Christ in all of these things. Christ would come for his church to bring a pardon. He would deliver his church out of the captivity and redeem her. He came in the flesh. He took upon himself the sins of his people and the curse that was due to them. He willingly gave himself to bear the wrath of God and all of the punishment for their sin. His obedience merited for them a righteousness which could never go away, an eternal righteousness. God looks at his people through Jesus Christ and he says, my people are pardoned. I accept them. They are welcome into my presence. Your iniquities are pardoned only in the coming Messiah. And through him, their warfare is accomplished. Jesus is the seed of the woman who would indeed do battle with Satan and his host. He fought against the devil's temptations in the wilderness and all through his life, and he overcame. He endured the reproach and the ridicule of men. He was persecuted and reviled, even by those who called themselves the people of God. They, too, persecuted him. And in the end, Satan and the false church and the ungodly world powers united to put him to death, to crucify him. But that is the victory of Jesus. By his atoning death, he actually earned the release of the captives from the bondage of Satan and sin and death. He destroyed the power of hell, and the victory is evident in his glorious resurrection from the dead. Your warfare is accomplished in Jesus Christ. Without him, this prophecy could not even be made. 
to the people that, that in, who were in captivity, your warfare is, a, is finished, your pardon is realized, and a double blessing, well, that is obvious too, isn't it? Eternal life. Eternal life is ours for Jesus' sake, beyond anything that we could ever think, including the individual reward that God gives to his people. Amazing that God looks at us, he gives us his grace, and we stumble along and seek to do good, and God rewards that too by crowning his gifts with his grace. A reward earned by Jesus Christ. Isaiah, with the vision of a prophet, cries out, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Your warfare is accomplished, your iniquities are pardoned, and you will receive double from the Lord's hand. To whom then? Is this comfort declared? Who are the particular recipients of this declaration of comfort? They are called my people. They are called Jerusalem. And therefore, there are three distinct groups that I want to call to your attention who, who hear the word directed to them, comfort ye. In the first place, it's obviously the captives in Babylon. And from an external point of view, this could refer to all of the Jews who were there in Babylon. They would all benefit if Cyrus would come and he would and say, you may all go back to Jerusalem. They could all be released. They could all go back and be an independent nation once again. And yet for many of them, there was no interest in that. Their life was Babylon. They were completely satisfied to live with the Babylonians in their lifestyle. They had no desire to return to Jerusalem. And therefore, when the decree came from Cyrus, you may go back, it was a remnant of the countless numbers of Jews there. A remnant only returned to build Jerusalem and the temple. And so the recipients, first of all, are the elect of, of the captives there. The others didn't receive any comfort from this. They didn't care about their sins whatsoever. They had no hope of a reward. But God's people there longed to return to Jerusalem. And they understood the significance of this went far beyond merely that they could return to that decimated Jerusalem and the land of Canaan. But it was a prophecy of the Messiah. Only because of him would they have true freedom. So that's the first group. The captives, the elect captives in captivity. Second group is the people of God who were alive in Hezekiah's day, in Isaiah's day. The true people of God who heard the terrible judgments that God decreed against Judah and Jerusalem. 
They wept when they saw the horrible iniquity in the church, in their church. It caused them tremendous grief. And then when they heard God's pronouncement of judgment on His church, on Jerusalem, on the temple, they wept. They feared for their children, for their grandchildren. And some of the people who heard the words of Hezekiah would have to live then through the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and be carried off away into captivity. But they could remember this, that Isaiah also said, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Seth, your God. And the reason for comfort would sustain them in their captivity. The Messiah is coming. They would have deliverance, true deliverance, from their bondage and have the victory in the Messiah. The elect captives, those who lived in the days of Isaiah, and, of course, the third group is us. It's for us. Clearly, this is the word of God for the church of all ages. The language indicates it. My people, those are the elect people of God. When it speaks of their God, clearly that can only be God's chosen people the true Jerusalem is the church of God throughout the ages in every nation, tribe, and tongue. The church that lives in the midst of Babylon today. The world in which we live is clearly Babylon. Babylon that is always enticing us, God's people, to forsake the antithesis, to join with them in their idolatry, in their immorality. It requires of God's people constant warfare. Warfare against our own sinful nature, against the temptations of the world and the call of the world to come and join them and enjoy the things of this world. The church is in constant battle, spiritual battle. And this promises... Christ is coming. And when he returns, he will deliver his people from the Babylon of this world and take him to himself. This is the comfort God commands. Notice that. God commands, Comfort ye my people. Who are the ye? Well, obviously, it's the prophets who had to carry this message out, Isaiah and others. And today it's the preachers of the gospel. God has determined that his people must hear the comfort of the gospel in the preaching week after week. Comfort ye, my people. In all the ages, God's people need to hear comfort. 
And what a sure comfort it is for us, because whereas the Jews living in their captivity would return to the broken down land of Judah and only have to hope that the Messiah was come for us, he has come, born as a babe in Bethlehem, in our flesh, come to pay for the sins of his people. And he did, and he is absolutely victorious over sin and death, over all the powers of evil, and he has earned for us an eternal life. And the day is coming when he will return. So the, the promise, the comfort for us is he's coming. He promised that he is coming again. He will come and take you unto himself. And even the deliverance of the captives and going back to Canaan is a picture of our entering into the new heavens and the new earth. And concerning that, Isaiah 66, verse 13, God says, As one whom his mother comforteth, so I will comfort you. And ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. That is the comfort of Christmas. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thy ways are so far above us. Perfect is thy plan, promised from the beginning of time in the garden, after the fall of Adam and Eve, and throughout the Old Testament, realized in Jesus Christ. And we look now for that final hope of the return of our Lord and the clouds of heaven, the full deliverance and the entrance into eternal life. We thank Thee that our warfare is accomplished in Him, that our sins, our iniquity, horrible iniquity, is pardoned. And we can look forward to the glorious reward that Jesus has earned. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. We sing 264, 264. Stanza seven, for lo he comes, at his command all nations shall in judgment stand, in justice robed and throned in light, the Lord shall judge, dispensing right. We sing the first three, and then five and seven, one through three, Five and seven, two sixty four.
The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. Thank you.